Well, good morning. All right, man. Hey, it's great to see you guys. Y'all are here across locations. There's some kind of school break, I think. Uh, it's raining outside. Extra crowns in heaven for all of you. Isn't that great? I think that's somewhere in the Bible. No, but hey, if you have, uh, I'm glad you're here. If you have a Bible, grab it and head to John 6 with me, if you will. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. This past week, I came across an old video. It was filmed all the way back in the 1900s, 1999 to be exact. And, and some of you just felt really old, didn't you? And You've probably seen it, at least some of you, but in the video are two teams of people passing basketballs. And there's a team in white and a team in black. And before the video rolls, there's a narrator who says, count how many passes the team in white makes. And so I can still remember the very first time I watched it, I was locked in because I'm super competitive and I hate to lose at anything. And so I am watching very, very intently, counting every pass. And then the video ends and the narrator asks, how many passes did they make? I say 15. The narrator says 15. I said, of course it was 15. Can't fool me. And then the narrator asked this question, but did you see the gorilla? And I was very confused. I was like... What do you mean gorilla? There were teams of people passing basketballs. There was no gorilla in the video. And so then they play the video back. And as the teams are passing balls, somebody in a gorilla suit walks into frame, stops in the middle of the video, beats on his chest, and then walks out of frame. And the person in the gorilla suit was in frame for a total of nine seconds. Has anybody seen this video? Okay, a lot of you have. If you haven't, you can go Google it, and I just ruined it for you, okay? You're going to see the gorilla, but, but they did a study on the video. Here's what they found. About half the people who watch it see the gorilla, and about half the people don't. I was in the half that don't, okay? And, and the point of the video was simply this, that at times we as people can be blind to what is obvious and clear, and even worse, we can be blind to the fact that we're blind to what is obvious and clear. And in our text for today, this is exactly what's going on. We're actually picking up in the middle of a conversation that we started talking about last week where Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And he made that truth very obvious and very clear. Before making the announcement, he did a miracle using bread. There were about 20,000 people present, 5,000 men and you add in the women and children, it was a very large crowd, and he took five loaves of bread and two fish, supernaturally multiplied the elements. Everybody, uh, everybody in the crowd ate until they were satisfied, and then Jesus said, that's what I'm here to do. That just like I fed you physically, I'm here to feed you spiritually. I am the bread of life. I'm the only one who can satisfy. I'm the only one who can sustain. But sadly, the people didn't see it. And more sadly, they didn't see the fact that they didn't see it. And I want you to see it, all right? John chapter six, we're gonna pick up in verse 41. Here's what John writes. So the, Drew, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. 
Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. And we will stop there and talk, all right? Last weekend, if you were here, you know, we touched just briefly on the story of Israel wandering and journeying in the wilderness. You can actually find that story in uh, books two through five of your Bible, Exodus through Deuteronomy. But God in grace and kindness toward his people, the nation of Israel, rescued them out of Egyptian slavery. They had been there for some 400 years, and he raised up a guy named Moses, this deliverer, sent plagues onto the land of Egypt, parted the Red Sea so that they could get out of there. And after saving them, he began leading them to a land of promise. But between Egypt and that land, they had to live in the wilderness, all right? It was supposed to take about a year and then they did some really dumb stuff and said against God, and they stayed out there for about 40 years. But originally, one-year journey, and God provided for his people every single day. He actually sent manna from heaven, this sweet bread. Every morning they woke up, woke up, it was on the ground. All they had to do was get it and eat it. And so God is providing for his people. But here's what's interesting. In Exodus 16, before God gave them that bread, they grumbled against their leader, Moses. You can actually, I mean, go read it. It's fascinating. But they say to Moses, basically, bro, I know in Egypt we were slaves, but at least we weren't starving. When we were in Egypt, we had meat to eat and bread to eat, and now you've brought us out here into this wilderness. We're going to starve to death. This is what the people in our text are doing, except they're not grumbling against God before he sent the bread. They're grumbling now after he sent the bread. This new bread, this true bread God sent into the world in the person of Jesus, and they're grumbling about Jesus and specifically about his claim to have been sent from heaven. I mean, if you think about it, that's a really strong statement, isn't it? Can you imagine if I stood up here today and I said, hey, I need everybody to do exactly as I'm telling you to do. I have been sent from heaven. Hopefully, you would all be running for the doors, right? Because that's what crazy people say. And that's how cults get started. And I imagine in this moment, these people, that's what they're thinking. Uh, that dude sounds crazy. Sounds like he's getting ready to start a cult. And so they're whispering to each other. Isn't this Jesus? Come on, that's, that's Jesus, right? Son of Joseph. We know his mom. We know his dad, Joseph and Mary. How can he say that he has been sent from heaven? And here was the problem we see in our text. Okay, catch this. These people had become so familiar with Jesus that they couldn't see who he truly was. And even worse, they were blind to the fact that they couldn't see who he truly was. But come on, let's be honest, and before we start condemning them, I think we need to be honest. We do it too. We do it too. Let me ask you the question, man. You ever grumbled about Jesus? Anybody ever complained about Jesus because maybe you picked up his word and you were reading it and he asked you to do something you didn't really want to do, and then you're complaining like, forgive? Nah, I'm good. Nah. Nah. Uh, Jesus appreciates you, but I'm not doing that. I mean, if you only knew what they did to me, you wouldn't ask me to forgive them. Or hold on, pray for my enemies? Really, Jesus, you want me to pray for a Democrat? Really, like, <laughs> that just got way too personal for some of y'all, didn't it? <laughs> we need to do an altar call real quick and... What about this? Give my money? 
Get my, my hard-earned money, the money that I put in blood, sweat, and tears to bring home. Jesus, you want me to give my money to your church for the advancement of your kingdom? Now, I don't want to give my money. You ever done that? You ever complained against Jesus? Or what about this? Have you ever grumbled because you wanted him to do something and he didn't do it? You ever been there like life was hard or you're in a season of suffering or hardship and you say to King Jesus, it'd be great if you could show up in the midst of this and do exactly what I'm telling you to do. And Jesus very kindly and lovingly says, no, I'm not gonna do that because I can see some things that you can't see. And so we're not gonna do it your way. We're gonna do it my way. And then all of a sudden you're complaining against Jesus. Why do we do this? Why? Well, for the same reason they did it. Because at times when we are not careful, we can become so familiar with Jesus that we lose sight of who he truly is and consequently we treat him as lesser than who he is. It's what one of my daughters does with me and her mom, okay? I won't tell you which one. If you've heard my past stories, you can probably guess, all right? But, <laughs> but I got a girl in my house right now. She's approaching the teenage years. We're almost there. Pray for us. And and she loves to just pop off at the mouth at us. And, and when she does that, I don't know about y'all how you parent, but we don't play that stuff in my house. And so I remind her very quickly, I am not one of your little friends. Okay, I will take everything you own and put you in your room till you move out. Like we're not doing that in this house. And then I will very lovingly remind her, we are not on the same level. You are a child and I am your father. Things are, di you're not on the same level as me. And I just want to say to all of us, and listen, I'm preaching to me too. Okay, listen, you are not on the same level as Jesus. You're not. I mean, he is the eternal son of God, the one in whom all things hold together. In him, you live and move and have your being. As we talked about last week, he is the son of man. The one who after his resurrection ascended to the ancient of days. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. To him has been given glory, dominion, and a kingdom that will not end right now in present time. Think about this. There are angelic beings falling at the feet of Jesus and worshiping him. There are deceased saints who have gone into the presence of Jesus before us. They're falling at his feet and worshiping him. Do you know who you are? You are a sinful, broken, created, finite being who is completely dependent upon Jesus for everything you need. You would not be sitting in that seat right now looking at me if it weren't for him. You are not on the same level as Jesus, and neither am I. And so we gotta be really, really careful about grumbling against Jesus. We need to be honest with Jesus and we need to share our hearts with Jesus because he invites us to do that, but we can't forget who he is because when we forget who he is, we start to treat him as lesser than who he is and that's what the people are doing. And I love it, he calls them on it. He's like, hey, stop grumbling. We're gonna see it later in the text, but Jesus was saying all this in a synagogue in Capernaum and in the ancient world, synagogues in small towns were really small rooms. It wasn't a room like this, all right? It was a very small room. And so Jesus could have heard the whispers. He probably heard the comments. And he's like, hey, I need all of you to stop grumbling. And then in verse 44, he says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, I need you to know that text, John 6, 44, 
That verse has been at the center of much debate in the church for centuries now. And it's the whole Calvinism versus Arminianism debate. I don't know, some of y'all, you hear those terms and you get triggered and your eyes twitching and you're like, James, please don't talk about that today. And, and then others of you who are theology nerds like me, you're like, yes, let's talk about it. Let's, let's go there. And others are like, bro, I don't even know what you just said. Are you speaking English right now? So if you're unfamiliar, here are the questions at the heart of this debate, okay? As Jesus says, no one can come to him unless the Father draws. Here are the questions, okay? Well, does God draw all people or does he only draw some people? And when God draws a person, is that drawing irresistible or is it resistible? So in other words, if God draws me, do I have to come to Jesus or can I choose not to come? I'll be honest and tell you, I don't have time to get into the weeds of that entire conversation today. That is a big one. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about it on the podcast this week. We'll see how I'm feeling by Tuesday, okay? But I just want to stay focused on what is clear in the text. Here is what's clear in the text. You ready? That no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws. That's what's clear. And Jesus says it. No one can come to him unless the Father draws. Why is that? Because of this thing called total depravity. Here's a simple definition of depravity. I've given you this before. It simply means that you and I are unchangeably bad apart from the grace of God. And we see that in places like Romans chapter 3. No one is righteous, no not one, no one seeks God, no one understands God. And so what that means is that God has to initiate if we're going to come. And if God doesn't initiate, if he doesn't do something for us first to open our eyes and to change our affections, we'll never come to Jesus. And this is what Jesus is driving at in the text, okay? He quotes the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 54, 13, all will be taught by God. And when Isaiah wrote that during his day, the people were acting a lot like the people of Jesus' day. They weren't walking in faith. They weren't listening to God. They weren't following God. They would honor God with their lips, but their hearts were very far from him. And here is how good and gracious God is. In, in spite of all that, God said, I want their eyes to be opened. And I want their hearts to be turned back to me. And so God made this amazing promise through the prophet Isaiah, I will teach them. I'll teach them. I will give them the revelation they need to come in faith. I will go first. I will initiate. And this is the promise that Jesus is reiterating here. He says in verse 46, no one has seen the Father except him. And that makes a lot of sense logically, right? Nobody else has come from heaven except the Son. And so the Son has seen the Father. And he came into the world 2,000 years ago to make the Father known. This is where we started in John's gospel, John 1, that Jesus Christ is the word, he is the logos, the divine self-expression or speech, he is the visible manifestation of God's glory in our world. In other words, Jesus Christ came to speak of God. He came to make sense of the Father so that you and I would know what the Father is like. But even so, we can't come to him unless the Father draws. And do you know how God pulls that off in his world? This is fascinating. You know how he does it? He uses us. He uses us to draw people to his son, Jesus. All right, here's the truth. You and I can't draw people to Jesus. And I know if you're anything like me, that's really frustrating, isn't it? 
Because if you're anything like me, you have people in your life that you love dearly and all you want is for them to meet Jesus. Because they're walking through life in misery and they have no joy and no peace and contentment and you see it so clearly what they're missing in life, but they can't see it. And they're blind to the fact that they can't see it. And they're running after the things of this world to try to fill that void that only Jesus can fill. And it's so frustrating because you know, if I could just get them to believe, everything would change. But you can't. It's frustrating. At the same time, though, it's relieving that the pressure to draw sinners isn't on you but that God has put that pressure on himself. But that doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing, okay? We do some things. I would say three things in particular. Number one, we pray for God to draw people to Jesus. And this is something I would encourage you to do every single day, to pray for people by name that are far from God, that you know and love, that God would draw them that he would open their eyes, change their affections, and get them to the Savior that they need. Secondly, we can point people to Jesus. And I'm talking about in the way we live our lives each day. Like, come on, man, we can't afford, especially in the world we're living in, to be hypocrites, to be those people who say we believe some stuff and then don't live it out. We have to be people of integrity, We have to live lives of sincerity. We have to live lives in which we are honoring God with our mouths and our hearts because there are people out there that need the Savior and we have the ability to point them to him by the way we live our lives. And then thirdly, we can proclaim the good news of the gospel. Like we can spend our lives telling sinful people who don't know Jesus that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but to save it. And that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And listen, when you and I do those things, when we pray and point and proclaim, God uses us to draw people to Jesus. And this is where our comfort lies. In verse 45, Jesus says, everyone who hears from God and everyone who learns from God will come. He goes on, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. There's the announcement again. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so what Jesus does here, he draws this comparison between physical death and spiritual death. And he goes back to the story of Israel in the wilderness again because the people brought it up and and he just reminds them, look, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. And so God sent bread from heaven, they ate it and they died. And then he says, but to the contrary, God has sent true bread from heaven and whoever eats of this bread will never die. And he's obviously talking about himself, right? I mean, he says it, I am the living bread. And if you eat of this bread, you will live forever. And the simple point Jesus is making is this. Everybody dies, but not everybody dies. That everybody dies, but not everybody dies. And if you're confused by that, I'll make sense of what I mean, okay? Physically, everybody dies, right? I mean, I just checked it this morning to make sure. I mean, I preached this on Thursday, but I just wanna make sure it was still true today. I checked it this morning. Death rate still holds strong at 100%, okay? Just so y'all know. One out of every one people dies, okay? 
And here's the thing, there's nothing we can do to stop it. Do you know there are guys in our world right now who are trying to stop it? I read an article this past week, fascinating. There's research being done at Harvard trying to figure out how to help people live longer. There are guys like Jeff Bezos, the Amazon guy, Peter Thiel, the PayPal guy. They are funding research right now to try to help human beings to live to the ripe old age of 150 years old, which sounds terrible to me. Like, (laughs) dude, I'm 41 and I feel like I'm falling apart. I hurt everywhere all the time. And I can't imagine living another 109 years. Are you kidding me? But, but here's what I'm telling you. Even if they pull it off, we're all gonna die. It doesn't matter if it's 75 or 150, nothing we can do to stop it. And why, why? Because of sin, because of sin. I've given you this definition in the past. Sin is so much more than the bad things that you do. Sin is when you ignore God in the world that he made. It is when you, as a created being, poke your chest out at the creator God and you declare to him in word and deed, I'm gonna live my life, I'm gonna live my life. Like, I know the world and everything in it belongs to you, but I'm just gonna do me, all right? Look, can we be honest? All guilty. We're all guilty of that. And because we're guilty, we have earned this wage or this penalty called death. We see it in Genesis 3, we see it in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin, this is what you've earned as a sinner, the wages of sin is death. And so physically, everybody dies, but spiritually, not everybody dies. You see, in the Bible, spiritual death is talked about as the second death. We see it in Revelation 21, 8, and spiritual death, or the second death, this is eternal separation from God. Here's what you need to know today. We will all live somewhere forever. Death is not the end of life, but we will all live somewhere forever because God designed it to be that way. And there are only two options, okay? You will either live with God in his eternal kingdom or you will live separated from God in that place prepared by God for the devil and his angels. This is what the Bible terms hell. And it is a place of eternal torment, of eternal suffering. And let me just be clear, again, I know I said it, but I just want to point back to it. God did not prepare hell for human beings. He prepared hell for the devil and his angels. But sadly, people go there. And I know a lot of people struggle with this. And the question that people often ask is this, how can a loving God send people to a place like that? And I would just remind us today, he doesn't. People choose to go there. No, hell is self-chosen. I've given you this quote in the past. I find it incredibly helpful. This is from J.I. Packer in his book, Concise Theology. He says that hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. And so when a person says to God, I just wanna do life without you, hell is God agreeing out of respect. Okay, if you wanna live your existence without me, That's fine, I will respect your choice and you can live your existence without me. It is God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever worshiping him or without God forever worshiping themselves. Those who are in hell will not only know that for their doings they deserve it, but also in their hearts they chose it. Listen, here is the simple point. When it comes to spiritual death, eternity, the choice is yours. 
And I just want you to know, man, it breaks God's heart that people would choose that. Ezekiel 33, 11, that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. It should break our hearts that people choose that, but the choice is yours. When it comes to physical death, you don't get a choice. Everybody dies physically. When it comes to spiritual death, you get a choice because not everybody dies spiritually. And I am pleading with you today, if you do not know Jesus, there is no reason for you to choose eternal separation from God because Jesus gave his life that you might live. This is what he says in verse 51. This is so beautiful. He says, the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, Jesus is alluding to the cross here before the cross ever happened. He's speaking about this historical event before this event ever took place, and he's reminding us of what he would suffer for the sake of sinners like you and me. I mean, we know from the scriptures and from history that Jesus Christ suffered physically at the cross in ways that you and I simply cannot comprehend. Like before he ever made it there, he was beaten within an inch of his life. He was spit upon, punched in the face, wore a crown of thorns. And when he finally made it to the place of sacrifice, they stripped him of all of his clothes because crucifixion was really about shame and humiliation And then they drove nails through his wrists and his feet, and he hung naked upon that cross, covered in his blood, sweat, and tears for us. He suffered physically for us. But more importantly, Jesus Christ suffered spiritually for us. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that at the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we could become the very righteousness of God. Here's what that means, that at the cross, God the Father treated Jesus as if he lived your life. Like he got all the worst parts of who you are and the father treated the perfect son as a sinner so that you could be set free. And then he turned around and he treats you now, if you know him, as if you have lived the life of Jesus, even though you haven't. And it's all because of what he's done. That Jesus Christ made you righteous, perfect, holy, blameless in the sight of God. And because of him, you are loved fully and forever. This is what Christ has done for you. The man from heaven went through hell so you would never have to know what hell's like. Jesus Christ experienced separation from God so that you would never have to be separated from God. This is what the great reformer Martin Luther called the great exchange. That at the cross, he got the worst parts of you so that by faith in him, you could receive the best parts of him and be accepted by God for all of eternity. His offer to you is life, abundant life and eternal life. And if you want the life that he offers, you don't work for it and you don't earn it, you believe. And Jesus goes on in the text to explain what that means, what it means to believe in a very, very interesting and almost disturbing way. This is where our text gets really hard, so just hang in with me, okay? Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So what Jesus is doing in these verses is what he's done in other places in John's gospel. He's using a physical reality to teach a spiritual lesson. We saw it in John chapter three when he talked to Nicodemus about the kingdom of God. And he's like, all right, Nicodemus, if you wanna see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And poor old Nick was so confused. He's like, how does that work? I'm a grown man. Like, am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And he clearly wasn't getting it. We see it again in John chapter four where Jesus meets the woman at the well in Samaria. And she runs off into her village to tell everybody about Jesus And the disciples come back with food, and they're like, Jesus, you need to eat. And he says, I have food you don't know about. And they're confused. They're like, who gave you food, man? Who fed you while we were gone? And and he says, no, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is what's going on in our text, okay? These people are confused. And all they can think is cannibalism. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Alive. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Um, Years ago, I I watched this movie. It's fascinating. It's based on a true story, and it's about a South American rugby team. They were on their way to play a match in a neighboring country. They're on a plane, and they have friends and relatives with them. And during the flight, they crashed into the Andes Mountains, okay? They thought that they were going to be rescued within a very short period of time. That is not how it went. So after days and days of being in the Andes Mountains, there's snow everywhere, frigid temperatures, The people who survived the plane crash decided that they would eat the deceased passengers to stay alive, hence the name of the movie, all right? That's what these people are thinking he's saying. Jesus is telling us that if we wanna live, we're gonna have to eat him. And I find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't correct their wrong thinking. It's not like he's going, whoa, 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 that's not what I mean, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying like literally eat me. But he actually goes further. He's like, yeah, look, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. As a Jewish person, that would have not only been nauseating, but very, very offensive. Because under the Old Testament law, it was forbidden for you to drink blood. You couldn't even eat meat with blood in it. Bye-bye, rare steaks, all right? And, And so these people are wrestling with what he's saying. Also in the Old Testament law, Leviticus 17, 11, we are told that life is in the blood. You see, this is why under the Old Covenant, when a Jewish person would sin and take an animal to make a sacrifice for their sins, the very first thing they would do is cut the throat of the animal and drain its blood. Because when the blood went out of the body, the life went out of the body. Life is in the blood. And it was indicative in that moment that the animal died for that sinner so that the sinner could live. And again, hear me, that's what Christ has done for us. Christ died a substitutionary, sacrificial death so that you and I could live. He gave up his flesh. He poured out his blood so that we could have life. And he's saying in the text, if we want that life, what do we do? We eat his flesh and we drink his blood because that's what it means to believe. I just need you to lean in and listen very closely, okay? I need you to know today that believing in Jesus is way more than you just giving a nod to Jesus, And I think it's so important for us to know that, especially in a context and in a culture like ours, 
where a lot of people, you know, and you know these people, like I know these people, a lot of people, they pray a prayer at eight years old to stay out of hell, and then they spend their entire lives living like hell, but they're like, oh, no, I believe in Jesus. I, I don't know if you do. Because that, according to the Bible, is not how belief works. Believe, the word, I've told you this so many times, in John's gospel, it is a verb, it's not a noun, it's not something you have, it's something that you do. It is pastuo in the Greek, it means to entrust. And what Jesus is teaching us is this, that believing in him, it is about you and I as sinful people looking upon his sacrifice and giving our lives to him in response to him giving his life for us. And listen, that's not something that we do just one time. It is something we do each and every day. I've told you this in the past, but in the Bible, salvation is past, present, and future tense. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and one day in the future, we will be saved. The biblical terms for that, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, past tense. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, which is death. That happens in the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Sanctification, we are being saved from the power of sin by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is ongoing, sanctification. And then future tense, glorification, one day in the future, man, we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. Praise God, what a day that will be, amen? Can I tell you what's fascinating about our passage? We see all three tenses of salvation right here in what Jesus says. Let me show it to you. Jesus says, if you eat this bread, you won't die. Past tense. That's justification, okay? He says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I will raise you up. That's glorification. It is resurrection. It's what Jesus will do for us one day in the future. And then he says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will abide in me and I in you present tense salvation. This is sanctification. The word you see there, abide, it's so important in John's gospel. We're going to see it again later in the gospel. But the word abide means to remain or to stay. And theologians call this co-inherence or mutual indwelling. And it begins the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, okay? In that moment of faith, you are united to Christ, which is another way of saying that you are in Christ. And because you're united to Christ, everything that is true for him is true for you. His life is your life, his death is your death, his resurrection is your resurrection. Everything he has done and accomplished applies to you, which is why you can stand before God holy, blameless, righteous, and acceptable, okay? United in him. At the same time in the moment of faith, Jesus Christ indwells you by the person of the Holy Spirit. And don't let this be lost on you, my friends, especially if you've grown up in church and you've heard this a million times. Like, think about this with me. Let this just sit on you, okay? If you know Christ, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit abides in you. He has taken up residence in your body. And here's what's beautiful. Unlike what he did in the Old Testament where he would come and go, He's there to stay. He never leaves. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. And so here's the point. If you know Christ as Savior and Lord, you are in him and he is in you. And you are meant to experience that reality on a daily basis. But listen, if you're going to experience his abiding presence, what do you do? 
You have to eat his flesh and drink his blood every single day. Here's what that means. You gotta preach the gospel to yourself daily. And so every morning when you get out of bed and your feet hit the floor, the first thing that you do as a believer in Christ is you cast your mind to Calvary. And you think upon the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That he was beaten for you and spit upon for you and mocked for you, that he took nails for you, that he hung upon that cross and suffered physically for you. And then you remember that he became sin for you, that he took the worst parts of who you are and he drunk down every bit of wrath that you deserve from the Father so that you could be set free. You remember what he has done, that you are an unworthy sinner, which is why he had to die but because your life matters to God, Jesus Christ was willing to die. And because he gave his life for you, you now have life. That by his life, death, and resurrection, he has brought you into the family of God. You're a loved son or daughter, and nothing can ever change that. And then what you do next, in response to that good news, you entrust yourself to Jesus. What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? That you preach that good news to yourself and in response to the news, you believe, you entrust yourself to him. That you would lay your life before King Jesus each and every day and say, all that I am is yours. I'm holding nothing back from you. Nothing's off the table. Spirit of God, come today and lead me and guide me and empower me and make me more like the one who has saved me. And then by the power of the Spirit of God, you follow Jesus. And you forget about you. Life's no longer about you. And you obey his teachings and you follow his way of life. This is what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And I just want to say out of love and concern for some of you, the reason that you are not experiencing the abiding presence of Christ in your life right now is because you're not doing that. You're not doing that. And the reason you're not doing it, listen, is because you've become too familiar with Jesus. Like to you, that's ah, just Jesus. It's just Jesus, guy I've heard about my whole life. It's just Jesus. You have lost your sense of awe and wonder at what he's done for you. And if that is you today, I just want to remind you of what he says in verse 55, that his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. And that goes back to what we talked about last week. Listen to me. Temporary things cannot satisfy. They can't, but only Jesus satisfies. And my friend, you can forsake Jesus and feast upon the things of this world if you want, but you will die. You'll die. Like, just like the Israelites ate the manna and died, you'll die. You will walk through this life in misery, missing what you most need, missing the satisfaction that Christ gives. And then at the end of your life, you will die a second death, the spiritual death, because temporary things can't save you. It can't. On the other hand, if you forsake the things of this world and you feast upon Jesus each and every day, you will live he will satisfy you here and now. He will give you the gift of eternal life. And listen, him giving his life is the only thing that makes that possible. And so with all that said, and as we close, we're gonna respond today by eating his flesh and drinking his blood together. And the way we're gonna do it is by taking communion. You should have had one of these cups in your seat or uh, you should have received one, excuse me, at the door when you came in at every location and so if you just get this in your hand, you don't have to do anything with it just yet. I want to talk about it for just a moment, okay? I told you last weekend that this weekend we were going to do this together. 
and that after the sermon, it should make a whole lot more sense why we were going to do this today. Hopefully, it's making sense, yeah? I hope so, okay? If it's not making sense yet, it probably will in just a minute. So let me talk about this. In a minute, what we're going to do is we're going to eat bread, and we're going to drink juice, okay? And I just want to say, be patient with our communion cups. We had to buy new ones that we don't normally use, because like everything else in the world, there's a shortage on communion cups, of all things. So... We're going to roll with what we got, okay? But, uh, but anyway, be patient with the communion cups. But, but we're going to eat bread and drink juice. And these elements that we will eat and drink, they're symbolic, okay? The bread represents the broken body of Christ. And the juice represents the blood that he poured out to pay for or to atone for our sins. And when we partake of this very simple meal we are looking back and we are remembering his sacrificial death in our place for our sins. But would you listen to me for a minute? This is also a declaration of belief. This is you and I in our eating and drinking saying that we believe, not that we just have believed, but we believe today that only Jesus can give life. And do you know that when we do this, Christ meets us in this meal? That he's not just like far removed, seated on his throne, going, so glad you guys are eating and drinking today. But Christ is present with us as his people when we partake. And to take it a step further, the Holy Spirit of God actually uses this cup to change us. We see it in 1 Corinthians 11 so clearly where the apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, you need to take communion or the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, okay? In a worthy manner. Why? Because they weren't taking it in a worthy manner. In fact, in the Corinthian church, sin was blatant. A lot of division between people in that church. But even so, they were coming and partaking of this very simple meal. And Paul says to them, that's why you're getting sick and dying. Because you're coming to the Lord's table. And you're not taking it seriously. Listen, simple, simple. But this is meant to be taken very, very seriously. And so let me just say a couple of things, okay? Number one If there is sin in your life that you have not dealt with, that has broken your fellowship with God, maybe it's hidden, maybe it's private, maybe it's unconfessed, you need to deal with that before you eat and drink. You need to bring that to the Father and acknowledge it and confess it. And he, this is the promise, he in grace and kindness will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, but you need to get your heart right with God. And then secondly, I would say to you, If you're divided against a brother or sister in Christ right now, you need to get that right before you take this. Some of you, you might be able to do that in the next few minutes. Like, put your arm around your spouse and you're like, sorry, I was an idiot on the way to church. Please forgive me. Some of you might not be able to do that in the next few minutes. Um, Maybe there's a relationship in your life. You know it's broken. And again, it's another believer. and, uh, And you haven't done anything to try to make that right. I'm saying this out of love for you. You may not want to take this today. Instead of taking this, you might just want to spend this time in prayer and say, God, would you give me what I need to go make that right? And would you soften their hearts so that they can hear my apology and, and receive the forgiveness that, that I need to extend? And so, again, this is a very, very serious thing. I'll end with this. This is for believers only. Um, the only people that should ever take communion are those who in faith have drank his blood and and eaten his flesh. And so if you've never put your faith in Jesus, it doesn't really make any sense for you to do this. So for the believer in Christ, we're gonna pray in a second, and I want you to get your hearts ready, get your minds ready. Whatever business you need to do, you do it. 
And then for those of you who have not yet believed, you have two options, okay? You can set this aside and you can refrain from partaking and nobody's gonna think a thing about it, man. We just love you and we're glad you're here today. Or you can give your life to Jesus and you can join us for this meal. And if you need to do that, I wanna give you the chance to do it now. So if we can, let's just bow together. And if that's you, if you are that person who knows, man, I've, I've never given my life to him, but I need to do that today. I believe that he's the giver of life, that he gave his life so that I can have life. If you know you need to give your life to him, then just tell him that right now in prayer and in faith. Jesus, I want my life to be yours. Tell him, I'm a sinner and I need a savior and you are the savior that I need. Tell him right now that you believe that what he's done for you counts for you today. Jesus, I believe that you died my death, that you paid for my sins so that I could be accepted and forgiven by God. And then confess him as Lord. Confess him as Lord. Jesus, you're Lord risen from the dead and only you can give life and I want you to be Lord over my life starting today. So before we rush out of this moment, let me just say if you're someone who just made that decision for the very first time, before you leave at any of our locations, would you just tell somebody what you've done? Our prayer team is gonna be down front in every room and so as you go, just stop by and tell one of them, hey, I gave my life to Jesus today. And we not only wanna celebrate this decision, but we have a gift, some resources that we wanna give you so that you know where to go from here, what to do next, all right? So just tell somebody. But for the rest of us, let's go ahead and get our cups ready. And you can get that wafer in your hand. And I'm gonna read some scripture for us. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 24, the apostle Paul writes that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. Let's take and eat. in your juice cup. Paul continues, and he says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you for the blood you shed to pay for our sins. Let's take and drink. at every location, would you stand to your feet with me? We wanna do what we often do here at Cross Point and we wanna spend time singing, worshiping, giving Jesus the honor and glory he deserves. And, uh, and we wanna sing like saved people, all right? 
We want to sing like people who have been rescued out of sin, death, and hell forever. Amen? And so as the band leads us in this great song called Living Hope, I want us to give it all that we've got. Let's give Jesus what he rightfully deserves. Let's fill these rooms with his praises. Let's lift him up, make much of him right now. You guys come and lead us. Let's sing.